Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurotic Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and tonight I'm bringing you a solo episode. But my co-host Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash Futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. So I just wrapped up a fascinating interview with Zenobia Gottschalk, who has a uh, really long CV in internet infrastructure, cybersecurity, and uh, finance. And that made her a pretty ideal candidate to head up some of the marketing that's happening at a blockchain project called Hedera. And what they are trying to do is build a layer one blockchain, which will function as a layer of trust on the internet. And what that ultimately boils down to is something we've covered a few times on the Future Audio podcast, and that is this, this concept of data sovereignty. So being able to better control your data and who sees it and for how long. And this is a relatively new development. So hey, I'm old, uh, old enough to remember the early days of Facebook when people just posted everything all the time. And it took a little while for everyone to realize that that's maybe not a great idea, that possibly you don't want pictures of your kids out there, that you might not want to check in everywhere you go and make it easy for people to find you. And some of that represents cultural shifts, but there's also a, a shift in the underlying technology. There are more and more services around make it, making it easier for you to take control of those data and show some of it to your doctor, some of it to you know the bouncer at a nightclub and the rest to no one at all. And to be able to control or, or to have more granular control over the length of time that they have access to that data. And just in general, putting all of that back in your hands, putting the ball back in your court as it were. So this is something we, we've talked about a number of times on the podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation with Zenobia and I hope you do as well. So without further ado, here's episode 142 with Zenobia Gottschalk. Tonight, we're joined by Zenobia Gottschalk. Zenobia is an entrepreneur and the senior vice president of Hedera. Hedera is a fully open source, public distributed ledger that utilizes the fast, fair, and secure hash graph consensus technology. Its network services include solidity-based smart contracts, as well as native tokenization and consensus services used by a thriving community of developers to build decentralized applications. If you enjoyed this interview, Please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuroticpodcast.com. Zenobia, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hi, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, ma'am. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems that you're working on today. Sure. Um, so my background... Um, I started off my career in finance for Intel, and I didn't know too much about Intel or tech, but when you, you know, you go to school, you go to college in the Bay Area, that is just what you do. Um, from there, I was recruited into a startup called Beyond.com, where I worked on more of the analytical marketing side. So this was in the very early days when it was, okay, try to figure out like which places on a website do people click through and, you know, what kinds of things do they do? Um, and so that then brought me to a company called LoudCloud, which was started by Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. And we um, started, uh, 
you know, this was sort of early days of cloud computing, right? People didn't even call it uh, cloud computing yet. It was essentially, how do you figure out how to host infrastructure for other people? So my background has always been in internet infrastructure, um, you know, in enterprise technology. When uh, I, when my then boyfriend, now husband proposed, uh, we thought it would be best for us to live in the same city. And so I moved out to Atlanta. And that was when I, at the time, you know, I will say Atlanta has grown so much and it's now a great tech hub. But at that time, there was not that much technology here. And so what uh, I did was sort of a, a sharp left turn, right? I did not go into another tech company. I went and worked in investment banking covering internet security and infrastructure. So I knew internet infrastructure. I did not know sort of the banking side of it, and I did not know security, but that was a great trial by fire to really say, okay, great. You now literally have to learn every piece of the security infrastructure, and you have to understand how they all work together. And, you know, you have to understand how the bad guys work. And at that time, they were sort of shifting from just being, I don't know if you remember the term, you know, script kiddies, right, to sort of defacing websites and taking them down for fun to realizing like, hey, we can actually do these things for profit and we can make a lot of money out of hacking. Um, very quickly, I realized I really liked the cybersecurity industry, but I did not like investment banking. Um, so I went back to doing um, PR, marketing, and investor relations for companies in the cybersecurity space. And, you know, if you followed that industry at all, that has grown from, I think, about 700 companies at the time I was covering them as an analyst to now more than 4,000 companies, right? We just, we built the internet, the first generation of the internet in sort of this open, very trusting way, assuming that people would use it to communicate and not thinking that people would use it to do all the kinds of bad things that they're using it to do today. Um, you know, and they would not, unfortunately, compromise all of the sort of gaps and the the decisions that were made in the choice of making communication, you know, fast and simple and easy um, and, and, you know, sort of one to many. So, um, I was working in PR and marketing for cybersecurity companies when I met Dr. Lehman Baird and Mance Harmon, who are the two co-founders of Hedera. Um, you know, they actually both also come from a cybersecurity background. So, you know, one of the things that Lehman has talked about from the beginning is that his vision is to really build a trust layer of the internet. We can't go back and undo all of our mistakes with Internet 1.0, but we can build infrastructure that helps sort of web three and helps the next generation of internet be more secure. And we can think about those principles from day one so that we are building systems where you don't necessarily have to know or trust any single individual or any single company with your data, with, um, you know, the kinds of things that you're putting out there. Um, but you can still function on the internet. You can still communicate. You can still live on the internet. Um, in all those different ways, but in a much more secure way. Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. 
We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. So you were kind of primed for the blockchain when people came along and started talking about removing trusted intermediaries and all of this sort of thing. You were, you were ready for it. Well, I was skeptical enough of the current infrastructure to believe it was worth a try. <laughs> <laughs> you can see the gaping holes and thought, there's not right. a be- Yeah. <laughs> so if I wanted to steal a million... You know, sort of this arms race, right? And we're still doing that. We're doing this arms race against like, you know, we're... The people who are building infrastructure have to be perfect, right? You can have no gaps in that infrastructure, no vulnerabilities, whereas the bad guys essentially just have to find one thing and they're in. So that's not a great model, right? There has to be a different way to do this. And so what is the trust layer of the internet doing to to patch all that up? How, how does Hedera function to try to re- remove the dangerous present that, that asymmetry? Yeah, so I think, you know, with, with the internet, you know, at first we started, hey, email, that's great. You know, we are, we're communicating back and forth. We never really thought about, well, when we are creating all of this communication and content online, it all has to live somewhere, right? And then now when you think about data breaches, you what happens is hackers have figured out, okay, great, there's these huge sources of data, right? There's these huge sources of PII, there's these huge sources of all kinds of data that they've figured out are really valuable. So that's what they go after. Um, you know, uh, Atlanta-based Equifax, right, was breached. Why does one company have all of that information about me? Um, that's the model that is broken with, you know, the early generation of the web and sort of the way that we've set up these big, you know, monolithic companies to really own our data and to, you know, we essentially either have to pay for them to secure it or pay to access it, which both seem kind of ridiculous, right? Like it's data about me. Why do I have to pay them to make sure it's super secure? And why do I have to pay them to monitor to make sure that nobody else has taken it? And, you know, why do I have to pay them? And they they get to then sell that data to other people to determine how credit worthy I am. So it's really shifting the model on its head and saying, okay, maybe we should have, you know, this idea of self-sovereign identity, right? And sort of start with that kernel of, okay, if you have self-sovereign identity, you can choose what kinds of things you give out to different people, right? If I'm going to buy a car, I can choose to give, um, you know, my credit worthiness application to this specific person, but only for a certain amount of time. And then I can revoke it. And you don't necessarily have to see everything. You don't have to see the last 25 places I've lived. That's a strange thing for you to need to know for me to buy a car. Um, You know, when I um, am showing an ID for a concert or for something else, maybe you don't need to know where I live. Like, that's kind of a creepy thing, right? So if you start with sort of this kernel of self-sovereign identity and digital identity, and then you think about what kinds of applications can be built and what can that internet look like if you control all of that across all your properties, right? If I decide maybe I don't want Facebook mining like every single one of my memories and all of my friends for all the things that it mines, right? Or maybe I'm okay with that, but you should pay me for that because that data is valuable, that data is gold. Um, So I think really turning that on its head and thinking about, you know, identity is kind of the core of how we start internet and control of of our identity online um, just turns things around in terms of how you think about interacting with different services. Yeah, we, we have talked to a couple of data sovereignty people who have advanced a similar thesis. 
what is the market in your view for that service? So there's this famous thing, people don't want to run their own servers. And I think that's true. But you know, if, if it were easy to take control of, of my data, I might put more effort into it. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not sure everyone is like that. It may, maybe it will take longer for that idea to percolate out the, throughout the culture and, and for people to understand that their data is really valuable and that it's a source of weakness for it to just be out there in these monolithic companies. Um, like, what's your user base like? How, how are you validating that, that people actually want this and it will not just be a, a small cadre of blockchain nerds who really care about this stuff? <laughs> sure. I mean, I think every technology starts with a small cadre of nerds, right? Those are those are the people you want sort of playing around with things and figuring out what are the different ways I can use it. But you're absolutely right. It has to be super simple to use, right? And we're not we're not there yet. No, I don't think anybody says, yeah, blockchain is the easy, as easy to use as web one or web two today. And that is the user experience we've given people. And so we need to make sure that we give them that user experience going forward. Now, a percentage of people will care very much about that. And some of them will care very much about that in certain situations. So for example, the the example I used of identity in, you know, in going to a concert, right? Maybe Maybe that's not that big a deal, but maybe when I go to a club, I don't want to necessarily show the person at the front door where I live. Like that, you know, some of those kinds of privacy concerns, I think, will drive some of that adoption. The other piece of it is monetizing your own data, right? So if you can get paid for conducting transactions on the internet, for viewing certain things on the internet, for contributing your own content on the internet, right? It's almost the opposite of the Elon Musk, um, hey, you give us all your content for free. And by the way, I'm going to charge you, you know, $10 a month or whatever he's going to charge for you to prove you are who you say you are. I think you've seen some of that, you know, sort of, wait a minute, are you kidding me? That doesn't seem like, you know, I should give all this content away for free and I should create it and somebody else should make money off of it. So I think once you start to see the models that are both really simple to use and users can make money off of, then you will start to see that broader scale adoption. Reverse, you, you live a much more exciting life than I do with all these clubs and concerts you're going to. Uh, <laughs> I, just, I don't know how you have the time. <laughs> no, that's that's definitely I'm definitely reaching into the past some here, right? There's a lot more. There's a lot more um, kids sporting events and other things that require no idea. Well, I go to the farmers market. I don't <laughs> want them to know where I live. Um, well, that, that's fascinating. So tell me a little bit about the underlying technical details. So, I mean, what is it that you're actually capturing? How do you facilitate the ability of people to choose in a tiered fashion who's going to see their data? What does all that look like? Yeah. So, you know, Hadira is actually a layer one blockchain, right? It is the underlying infrastructure that other applications are built on top of. So Hadira itself um, you know, essentially runs like any other infrastructure runs, right? If you think about instead of AWS, where AWS owns all your infrastructure and you pay AWS a big fee every month, you have this distributed infrastructure where, um, you know, it's it's run across multiple companies, it's run in different locations, and then people build their applications on top of that. So you are seeing people build applications. And we actually have a whole white paper on privacy and privacy considerations for blockchain, um, you know, that we can share as well. Um, you know, the, the, what Hadira allows you to do is say, okay, we're, you know, we're going to use, we're going to have sort of adoption of some of these digital identity standards. 
We're going to allow people to build that into their applications, and then they can decide what kinds of applications those are. So, you know, we don't assume that we know everything and that we're going to be able to think of all the different kinds of applications that people um, will want privacy for. But we're seeing some really interesting things. So in the healthcare space, pre-pandemic, I would have never um, imagined this use case. So, you know, we had people who were saying, you know what, there's a lot of, for example, vaccine testings and trials. You're seeing a huge, um, there's just so much development happening in the healthcare space right now in terms of, you know, new treatments. All of those have to go through trials, right? Imagine you're not, imagine you're, you know, a kid who was being tested with the COVID vaccine. You may or may not have, you probably are not of an age where you could give consent to then have that be part of your ongoing long-term medical record, right? So that's the kind of application where you say, mm, maybe, you know, being able to have a record that I control and that I decide down the road what gets shared with my insurers, with my employers, those kinds of things. Those are the kinds of applications that we're starting to see bubble up and that people are starting to build and build consortia around and, you know, use in places like universities um, where they are, you know, saying, hey, wait a minute, we we should take, let's take a step back and consider the privacy implications of what we are building. And how do we do that? We can't do that with a centralized application, right? Because we have to own all the data and has to live in one place. Can you talk to me a little bit about the, you know, at Excuse me. Sorry, one second. This is not wine. Just my parents only had these glasses. Okay, this is this is moonshine. So, <laughs> um, what was I saying? Yeah, right. So, the blockchain I'm most familiar with is the Bitcoin blockchain. Could you tell me a little bit about the nuts and bolts of how Hedera is different from that? So, I mean, are people mining blocks or the transaction? Do you even have a token? What how does all that work? Sure. So um, you can think of Bitcoin as sort of the, the OG, right? Bitcoin was the original um, network. Uh, it is a proof of work network. So you have to actually mine the blocks in order to record your transactions on the network. That's a very compute intensive process on purpose, right? They don't want people to just be sort of being able to do this willy nilly. They wanted to make sure that, um, you know, it took some work in order to do that. Well, it turns out when you ask people to solve really compute intensive problems, it takes a lot of compute power, which takes a lot of energy. Um, that's we, We've discovered like, wait a minute, at scale, that's not great, right? Like you hear the stories about Bitcoin uses more energy than, you know, I don't know, Sweden or whatever it is. That's really not sustainable. And by having that be the function by which you can write transactions onto the ledger, you essentially make sure that it's, you know, super inefficient, it takes a long time, and it uses a lot of energy. So there are now, you know, second and third generations of blockchain like, um, you know, Ethereum, and then like Hedera that have said, wait, we need to do this a different way. Um, so Hedera is something called a proof of stake network. We don't actually require people to do work to write transactions on the network. It's secured. Um, using, uh, you know, we do have a native cryptocurrency HBAR, which works as part of the um, security of the network and works to help secure the network. Um, and so essentially, it is an evolution of those 
cryptocurrencies and those um, you know blockchain networks. It is saying, okay, great, we probably didn't get things super right with like version one of how we did compute, right? Like nobody's, I mean, some people are still using mainframes, but most people are not, right? So, <laughs> so if you think about that evolution, Hedera is sort of third generation of blockchain, and it is you know much faster. Um, it's much more secure. And then in terms of the, um, you know, the energy consumption, it uses essentially a fraction of the energy of older generations of blockchain, but also uh, a fraction of the energy of even something like the Visa network. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it. Give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. So how do people participate in it? Do, do you have, I presumably you don't have mining nodes, but people would stake a certain amount of HBAR, and what, is, what does that accomplish? Sure. So, you know, the, the biggest way that people to participate is they just start building applications on the network. It's an open source network. Anyone can go in and start building. Typically, you'll try out and build your applications on a test net first, and then you know when it's ready for production, start to do that. You can also do things like staking, like you said. So you can stake your HBAR to particular nodes so that they have you know weight on the network. Um, you know, you can participate. There's um, there's all the sort of accompanying kind of DeFi applications and, you know, NFT collections and those kinds of things that are built on Hedera, similar to how you see them on other blockchains. Um, so, you know, the biggest way that we personally engage with people is in terms of we work a lot with the builders who are building on the network and, you know, try to make sure that their stories are told out there and try to make sure that people understand what kinds of real world value um, is being built on the network so they're not sort of scared of it and they don't think it's just for, um, you know, for the cryptocurrency. And then if I build an application on Hedera and it has customer data, like how is that stored? So, I mean, the whole point is privacy. So if I'm entering healthcare data into an application that was built on Hedera, what's happening to it such that I don't have the same concerns about it being locked up in a monolithic company where it can be breached? Yeah. So, you know, you you do have to design your application, right? You still have to choose, okay, I won't, you know, I perhaps will only see certain kinds of data that the user shares with me, or I will only see the metadata. Um, you know, every transaction and every piece of data gets written across all of the nodes on the network. So it's never just one, you know, node that owns all of that data. Um, it's very unlikely that all of those nodes get, for example, compromised. Um, but you do have to architect your application to decide, okay, who is going to have, for example, do I have the ability to revoke any data that I have then shared with you? Or if I am working across, for example, a supply chain, and um, we have a company in the UK that was working with NHS on their vaccine cold storage supply chain, you can imagine that every party in that supply chain will say, okay, I would like to contribute data to demonstrate that during my piece of that supply chain, I complied with, um, you know, the temperature controls and the other kinds of things that were required. But I don't necessarily 
want one person to own that data. So I want that application to be something where I, you know, as a contributor control what data gets shared, what data gets approved, you know, what data is visible publicly, what data is is visible privately. Um, so that kind of data, you know, across the supply chain, you can see how different people would say, I will contribute my piece, but only if I also get to, for example, you know, host that and, uh, and you know, and manage some of that, and I have much more granular control over it. And those are all architectural decisions made by the app designers. That's right. Okay. So if I'm designing, you know, a clubbing app to help you find new clubs to go to, right? <laughs> I'm like, I... Now you really think I have a different life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So, so if I'm doing that and, and your information is in there, I'm distributing that information amongst lots of different nodes. Is that right? Is it like, is the information broken up? piecemeal, like different parts of it are stored on different nodes, or is it different users' information are st stored entirely on different nodes? Like how does that work? How does the distribution part work? It, yeah, it it depends, again, on how you structure it, but you could also choose to say, um, you know, great, perhaps in your, for example, perhaps on your computer or on your sort of, you know, there's a, there's a way for you to validate that, but then Every time I make a call using that service, I don't actually get full access to that data, right? I only get access to the data that says, um, yep, you are over 21. It doesn't even say you are well over 21, right? It just says, just yep, barely, I, just barely just barely over barely, yeah, I just, I can just give you a yes or no, and I don't need you, I don't need to give you anything else, right? So the other interesting thing I will say that we're seeing in the, um, in the market is that you know, I think early on in blockchain, people were very, um, people were very of one camp or another, right? Private blockchain is going to win, right? Where um, only a small group of people sort of have access to what we would call an app net or, you know, a group of people agree that they'll share data. And then other people were like, nope, you need to write everything to a public blockchain and everything needs to be public. And what we're starting to see is that people say, wait a minute, there's actually most applications are going to have a little bit of this functionality where I need perhaps one person or a small group of people to verify, you know, that I um, that I am who I say I am and, you know, I have all these characteristics that I say I have. And then, you know, perhaps publicly or, or you know, revocably, I can share certain characteristics of that. So I think we're starting to also see kind of that um, that you know, joining of applications or that use of both private and public together, because that is, um, you know, that seems to be the most compelling thing, right? You're still going to have instances where you want a small group to um, be able to share a larger set of data and, you know, a bigger group to be able to share a subset of that data. I see. And, and the privacy component, how are you handling that? Because there's a few different ways you could do that. Differential privacy or zero knowledge proof, something like that. Do you, is that is that baked in somehow? So I think we're getting a little bit beyond my technical depth here, but I will I will then share the white paper in terms of, you know, how the different options for how that can be set up. Okay, fascinating. Um, what are some of the more interesting distributed app or yeah, dis uh, distributed applications that are being built on top of Hedera. Sure. I mean, they run the gamut, you know, there is healthcare. Um, we're certainly seeing a lot in supply chain. I think that's a really interesting space because 
Um, as you get more conscious consumers, people want to know what is the provenance of, you know, the shirt that I'm wearing or the headphones that I bought. And, you know, is it made with sustainable material? Um, you know, did the um, were the workers paid a fair wage, right? All of those things that are pieces of a supply chain are things where you can think, okay, that person has a set of information and maybe they want to share part of that with the end user, but they don't necessarily want to share everything about their piece of the supply chain with the end user. So um, you are seeing companies sort of think about this provenance and track and trace, whether that is with things like clothing or whether that is with things like pharmaceuticals or whether that's with things like, um, you know, produce and um, fishing, you know, is the is the fish that I bought, you know, caught legally and sustainably? Is the wine that I'm purchasing actually the rare vintage that it claims to be? Anything where you want provenance and you want sort of proof every step of the way of how that product or that service got to me and was it done in, you know, first of all, was it done in ethical ways? And then second of all, is it really what it says it is, right? Um, those are some definitely some areas where we're seeing a lot of interest. Um, one of my, you know, we're also seeing uh, a lot of interest in financial services applications. One of the things we haven't touched on is that the cost we barely touched on the cost of transactions on the Hedera network is a fraction of a penny, um, and it's denominated in U.S. dollars. So you can imagine that it is going to open up a whole other set of applications and also just a much lower cost structure for financial applications. Um, we had two of our governing council members, Shinhan Bank, the oldest bank in Korea, and Standard Bank, which is um, the largest bank in Africa, work on an international remittances um, project where, uh, you know, if you've ever tried to send money overseas, it's super expensive. Um, you know, there are just a few middlemen who do it, and that feels like an industry that's super ripe for disruption. Um, so they worked on a stablecoin um, proof of concept for international remittances between, um, you know, between Korea and South Africa. And, you know, instead of a remittance costing $35, it's costing, you know, 35 cents. And that's with them making, you know, some some margin on that. So I think those kinds of use cases we're starting to see evolve anywhere where you're like, gosh, if I could, you know, get the cost of doing something down from, you know, $50, $30, but even a dollar, right? There's some transactions where it's cost prohibitive to do it a dollar. Your credit card company is going to charge you more than that to conduct, you know, for, as a transaction fee. Um, so those are the areas that I think are really fascinating to me personally, and and we're seeing a lot of traction. You said something earlier about transactions on the Hedera blockchain. What, what counts as a transaction? I mean, it sounds like a lot of it's data. So if I'm transacting in HBAR, what am I doing? Yeah, so there's a number of different kinds of transactions. Um, you know, you can be... And um, there are certainly cryptocurrency transactions. Um, you can also write smart contracts on Hedera. And then, you know, every time you are calling the network to check on a smart contract or execute on that smart track contract, that's a different kind of transaction. People are creating, for example, NFTs and NFT collections on Hedera. So every time you're using the Hedera token service, that's another kind of transaction, whether that's to create or, um, you know, 
mint or trade um, NFTs. And those are not just, um, for example, NFTs of artwork. We actually have people who are fractionalizing home ownership and fractionalizing equity home ownership and saying, great, like I'm going to tokenize um, my house, right? And I'm going to um, allow investors to, I'm, I'm really doing a different model, right? It's become so cost prohibitive for most people to own a home that this is a new model where you can say, great, maybe I put down a certain amount and I'm willing to give up some of the equity upside. But in exchange, you know, I can start to um, I can start to have some of that equity and I can start to have some home ownership because I can fractionalize my home and, you know, I can pay a certain amount every month and there can be a certain amount that an investor or a group of investors owns. Um, so those to me are some really, you know, interesting use cases. And each of those transactions, whether it's using the Hedera token service, whether it's using the Hedera consensus service or... Um, smart contracts or cryptocurrency service, those are all transactions um, where you're making API calls to the network. How do you, how bullish would you say you are on this tokenization trend? It's a common use case for blockchain projects. There's, there's lots of ways you can handle governance or you could take something like fleets of cars or rare artworks and, and divide it up and uh, spread around the ability of people to take ownership in, in big asset pools like that. But uh, I haven't given a lot of thought to how serious a force I think that's going to be in the future. And I wonder what your thoughts are on it. Yeah. I mean, I think it is, you know, it's um, it's kind of the gateway drug, right? Like people were sort of playing around with NFTs in terms of digital art and sort of seeing what they could do with it. And it has spawned a lot of ideas and really thinking about, oh, gosh, I could tokenize sort of any asset that has has value, right? Especially ones that have big value. But for example, one of our council members is Aberdeen, which is an asset management firm out of the UK. Um, they plan to tokenize a number of their funds um, on Hedera. So, you know, those these are these are real world assets where you're trying to say, look, I'd like to have um, a way to fractionalize them. I'd like to make that opportunity open to more people to participate. And I'd also like to have, you know, better documentation and proof that's written and that can't be tampered with, um, you know, on not just a centralized database of who owns those assets and where they live. And I think, you know, as we as we see sort of more uncertainty in the world, there is more need. Again, going back to that trust layer, there is more need for sort of that proof and that level of trust across any kind of asset class that you would want to own. That's fascinating. Yeah, I, I I think all that's very compelling. So, what do you see coming down the pike for blockchain technologies? What what do you think are the the major use cases that we'll see coming out in the next three to five years? Yeah, I I think you know the nice part sort of of um, uh, you know where we are in uh what Gartner calls the hype cycle is that we're really in the building phase, right? We don't have to um we we have sort of said, okay, there's a bunch of there has been a bunch of hype. There has been a bunch of experimentation. Um some of those things have worked. Some of those things have absolutely not worked. And now when we are talking to folks, you have people have a much greater understanding of I need to I think blockchain adoption among enterprises has never been higher and people are figuring out how to bring this 
you know, game-changing technology into a Web2 experience so that it will be adopted by a lot more people. Um, you know, if you look at some of the collaborations with big brands doing things, they are pushing blockchain to say, you can't be just for Web3. You have to have a user experience that lives more in a Web2 world and that meets our customers where they are. So now that we've gotten out of sort of that, um, you know, hey, it's Web3 or nothing, right? And we start to have people understanding what does it take to onboard sort of the next, you know, what does it on take to onboard a billion users onto Web3 applications, right? That's not going to be the way that you've seen it done in the past. You're going to have it be a much more seamless experience where blockchain is just in the background of all your applications, right? Today, I don't ask you, hey, we're on Zoom. And by the way, what web server is it using? And where is the application hosted? And, you know, what's going to happen? Where do you post it? All those kinds of things. We don't care because it just works. Um, and I think you, the exciting thing for me is that you're starting to see that you're starting to see people say like hey i have this cool you know thing that starbucks gave me that's a you know an nft and i was able to you know as a surprise they also gave me a cool collectible cup because i was one of the first people to get that and they have no idea of all the stuff that's happening in the background right so those kinds of applications i think across consumer loyalty, where people are saying, I want to personalize my experience with my customers. I want to have a more direct relationship with them. Um, those are taking a lot more shape. You're starting to see creators and athletes and entertainers who are saying, I want a more direct relationship with my fans and I want to be able to monetize um, you know, my fan base in different ways. And then, you know, the it's all of the um you know, the things that we don't think are sexy until we have an issue, right? I don't I don't necessarily think that the provenance of my lettuce is really that interesting until, oh, well, there's, you know, an E. coli outbreak, so I probably should know where my lettuce is from, right? I, all of those kinds of things are happening in the background, and those companies are adopting this technology because they recognize that, you know, the way that we're doing things without sort of this trust and without this traceability are, are not working today. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. I, I think a, another way of getting at the same sort of insights is asking what industries you think are especially ripe for disruption by blockchain technologies. You already mentioned remittances, which is a, a pretty standard response. Are there any others? Yeah. I mean, there's there's a ton. Supply chain is definitely one. And I think that is supply chains of everything. Um, you know, that is um, are the chips I'm using authentic chips? You know, did they go through China? Um, you know, what is their supply chain? Um, you know, everything from clothes, food, you know, any anything that has a very complex supply chain, um, I think is is absolutely ripe for that. I think the other thing is, um, you know, uh, applications that help us address um, climate challenges. So anything where you need accountability. Today, if you are, you know, dealing with some of these carbon marketplaces and you're a big company that's going to try and buy carbon credits, it's sort of a like, 
fingers crossed that, you know, I'm buying this from a reputable source and they haven't resold those same things. And how do I prove that, you know, the carbon credits that I bought are actually the ones that they say they are and they're not being reused, right? That's a big challenge. Um, so anything where you have potentially a double spend problem on a ledger um, are applications that we're seeing uh, take advantage of that. Um, I do think we're also um, seeing in in democracies and in places where uh, people are trying to make sure that um, that misinformation is not running rampant and you have proof of provenance of things like photos and um, testimonies and images and documents. All of those areas are um, areas where we're already seeing people say, yep, you know, I need to I need to document this. And maybe I take it even further. I don't document it just on one blockchain. I document it on multiple blockchains so that, you know, there is proof of the provenance of those kinds of things. Um, another area that's not super sexy but is really important is document compliance. So there's a lot of industries that are regulated industries that have, um, whether that's financial services or government, where you have pretty strict compliance requirements around how you deliver documents, who they get to, can you prove that they got there. And those are areas where we are seeing people in different uh, governments or you know, uh, heavily regulated industries saying, yep, I need to build that into my um, systems. And that's just a much more efficient way to do that than sort of a, you know, somebody has to sign something every single time. It occurs to me that's especially important in the generative AI era that we're living through now, being able to prove that, no, 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 this, this isn't a fake image. That I didn't generate this with uh, with Stable Diffusion or, or Dolly or MidJourney. Like, this is real. It, it actually happened. I have the blockchain certifications to prove it. It's, it seems like that's also going to be pretty important going forward. Absolutely. I mean, I, when I heard about, I can't remember what famous artist it was, but somebody used AI to impersonate them and released a song that everybody thought. Drake in the weekend. Drake yeah. In the weekend. <laughs> right? Like, you know, then they- It bumps. It okay. bumps. I'm surprised you didn't hear it in the club <laughs> you go to. But, you know, ever so think about them being able to say, yep, this is really mine, right? And anything that you see that comes out that doesn't have my signature on it and does not have sort of all of this, you know, digital proof behind it, I do think you're spot on. I mean, um, blockchain is a great way to hold AI accountable or to hold people accountable for using or not using AI. Well, I couldn't agree more. And if somebody wants to learn more about Hadir Hash Hashgraph or, or you, where should we send them? Yeah, so um, Hadira.com is a great place. Um, I am at Zenobia Zag, Z-A-G, on Twitter. And uh, there are, the like I said, the, the Hadira white paper and also the Hadira privacy white paper are both available on the website. And then we also have a very active, you know, community, whether that is in, um, you know, in Discord, on Twitter, um, multiple places. There is a getting started guide if you want to figure out how to go start to build something. There's a very active community of developers who, you know, if you have a project idea and you don't have developers, they can, you know, help you or vice versa. If you're a developer and you want to get connected with a project, um, you know, those networks are, um, they're always looking for people on both sides. Well, fantastic. Thanks so much, Zenobia. This has been a great conversation and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.